0: So tonight, uh, we're going to be back in the Gospel of Luke. We're looking at the Gospel of Luke this semester. And we're going to be in Luke chapter two. Uh, if you didn't get the Insta memo, um, we're going to have a little Christmas in August tonight. As we look at the fact, the fact that Jesus was born, Jesus of Nazareth was born. You know, my, actually, my two, my two oldest or, yeah, my two oldest boys are here. I've got four children. My two oldest are here tonight. My wife's here as well, Carrie. She's over there. But, um, you know, I say this a lot as far as my my children's births. Um, You know, sorry to my other three, but for my oldest, I will never forget when he was born. I will never forget it. I will never forget most of the details around the day, the night before, the day that he was born. um, The, well, Carrie probably knows more precisely, the 12 to 14 hours it took for him to come into the world. Um... And, which was obviously not as hard for me as it was for another person, my wife. Um, I'll never forget holding him for the first time. Um, You know, you spend nine months talking to this creature inside your wife's belly, right? It's weird. It's as weird as it sounds, okay? Um, And then finally, you hold him, right? You hold him or her. And it's, it's amazing, right? So I remember all those things. But here's another thing that I remember when my oldest child was born. It was gross. (laughs) And I'm not joking. Uh, It was gross, okay? There is a reason why we go, women go, people go, to such lengths to like insulate that event (laughs) of birth. Like you go up into maternity wards these days and it's like a five-star resort. Why? They like... Because it's a messy endeavor to have a child. I don't know if you've ever been around uh, somebody, a sister or a mother or something that's had a baby. But... It's a messy endeavor, and the, the point I bring this up for because of this. If you think about it, all of us, most of us, have in our heads a pretty Hallmark card view of birth. We do. Uh, it's kind of just this sweet, awesome thing, right? It's like a puppy. Like puppies are really cute until they until they start pooping all over your house, right? We do the same thing with things like birth, birth and babies. That we have this kind of Hallmark card view of it. Um, and I'm not trying to freak anyone out, like all the women are going to go away tonight going, I'm never having children. Didn't mean that. Uh, it was great. It all went away as soon as I held him. It's like, yay, okay. Um, but it's a messy endeavor. And I bring that up to say that we also, if you're honest, if you read through Luke chapter two here with me, we all also kind of have a hallmark card view of this passage and this story that Joseph and Mary Um, betrothed to be wed with child miraculously. They go and they have a baby and we write a song about it and our kids sing it every Christmas, right? Away in a manger. But here it is. It actually, if you think about it, is an amazing historical fact, as Justin Martyr put it, that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, endured to be born a man. That God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, in person of Jesus Christ, endured to be born and to become a man. That's what this passage is about. So, if you would, uh, whether on your handout or in your own Bible, read with me here. We're going to read the first twenty-one verses uh, of Luke chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, circumcised, he was called Jesus, Jesus. The name that was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray for us and then we'll look into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of a savior born. A good news for all the people. We pray that we would be those people tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to look at three things with you here about the fact that Jesus was born, the birth of Jesus. First thing I want to talk about is the messiness, which I've already alluded to a little bit, right? Um, I'm not going to give you a biology lesson, but the messiness, the message, and the mission, okay? The messiness, the message, and the vision. The first one is the messiness, and there's two ways, um, two ways that this story, this passage, this doctrine in Christianity of a virgin birth, right? Uh, There's two ways, really, that this is messy for us. okay. And the first one is this. It's the the unreal part. The fact that this is kind of an unreal story, that we're supposed to believe that this girl, a teenage girl, conceived without ever knowing a man, without being married, um, and became pregnant with Jesus. um, And we're just supposed to go along with that. Like, okay, that should make sense. Look at verse 5. This is interesting, not to quibble about words, but in verse 5, Luke tells us that, that Joseph goes up with Mary and he says his betrothed. Meaning, they're not married yet. Very much implying they've not been together yet. His betrothed who was with child. That would have been a scandalous thing. It was scandalous to Joseph. It would have been scandalous to anyone who had known about it. So if you're familiar with the story at all, you know, uh, back in chapter one, you look at it yourself, uh, this angel, okay, again, we're not just supposed to think that this was a normal thing. An angel shows up and talks to Mary in Luke chapter one and tells her about what's about to happen, that the power of God is going to come upon her and she's going to conceive. And she looks at the angel and she says, how can this be? You know why she asked that? Since I am still a virgin. Okay? Interesting note there. Uh, you go to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells it from Joseph's perspective. That an angel comes to Joseph and says, what's going to happen? The power of God's going to come upon this girl that you're marrying. And she's going to conceive. And Joseph's kind of like, okay, great. And then we're told, Matthew tells us. And again, if you were going to make up a story like this, why would you tell this about Joseph? Matthew tells us that Joseph actually goes away planning about how to divorce her. Right? So here's, here's what is clear, not to belabor this point. The ancients, right? These people in the ancient Near East, they probably could not have told you what an X and Y chromosome was. But you know what they probably could have told you? Where babies come from, right? Right. And so we're not, there's no hint of like supposed reading this and like, hey, this is just supposed to make sense. That's not what Luke or any of the other gospel writers claim. Um, it's not just supposed to make sense. An ex-pastor, and an author named Rob Bell, he used to handle this issue, uh, the messiness of this issue of the virgin birth. And he likened it uh, to a brick, a brick in a, in a grand brick wall. And his basic point was, I mean, what do you really lose if you take away one brick, right? To which the best reply was Mark Driscoll, who said, well, nothing um, except Jesus, right? That's a joke. You can laugh. Um, (laughs) Take away the virgin birth and you don't have Jesus anymore. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, another pastor uh, who's a writer and and blogger, he recounts one time uh, on one of his blogs or something, he was going back and forth. Uh, with a liberal pastor, liberal meaning not uh, fully believing that everything in the Bible is true and and, and, uh, infallible. Um, And this is what this pastor said to Kevin DeYoung uh, in their exchange. He said this, Do I think that the virgin birth is essential to our creed as Christians? That's not really mine to say, is it? I need to take it seriously, and I need to take it to heart and wrestle with how I understand it. But for my part, I take the statement, all things are possible with God, as more valuable to my faith than how can this be, since I am a virgin. I don't claim that you need to accept my understanding, nor would I imagine that you would claim that I must necessarily accept your understanding. To which Kevin DeYoung replied, well, actually, I do claim that you need to accept my understanding Because it's not my understanding. It's the teaching of the New Testament. Here's my point. The Bible does not pretend, okay? The Bible does not pretend that this is just supposed to make sense. That angels appeared to these two people and told them what's going to happen. And even though she was not married and was still a virgin, that she conceived, right? We're not just supposed to say, oh, it's in the Bible. It should make sense. But the Bible does make no apologies, that if God himself was going to determine to come down into this world and to become a man, then he could do it on his own terms. That's what we're being told. So that's the first way that this is messy for us, just kind of the unreal aspect of it. But the second way that this is messy for us, if you begin to think about it a little bit more, is the all-too-real aspect of this. And that's the circumstances. The circumstances that Joseph and Mary find themselves in, the circumstances that surround this birth of this person, this man named Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God. Because think about the circumstances. You've got this soon-to-be new father um, traveling, obviously, with his very ready-to-birth a child um, and fiancé, okay? Then you've got a nervous, unwed Pregnant, probably teenager and probably young teenager, traveling with a strange man to a strange city, undergoing a very strange time in her life being pregnant, right? Those are the circumstances. And so let's not go away in a manger with this. Look at actually the first seven verses. First seven verses, what does it tell us? It says they're there, and that while they're there, it came time for her to have a baby, so she wraps them in swaddling clothes and lies them in the manger. So why does it tell us that she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in a manger? Well, the the most obvious answer is because that's the sign that the angels give the shepherds. That you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. But it also answers this question. Who in the world puts their baby in a manger? It's all sentimental to us, but that would have made no sense. We're told um, that they put him in a manger. Why? The plain fact is... Because there was no room in the inn. Birth, look, birth is not a Hallmark card. The circumstances of this birth is not something that goes on a Hallmark card. Joseph and Mary, they had to... Look, I was surrounded by nurses and doctors. I didn't even really know what was going on. And I was scared to death when my children were born. They had to have been scared to death. I'm no expert in ancient Near Eastern midwifery. But I'm, I'm assuming that they were scared to death. And, and again, sorry if you've never been around this or like, never realized that this isn't a Hallmark thing. But like, that room was probably very stinky. And it might have even looked like an animal had been killed in there after it. That's the messiness of the circumstances of this story. Okay, Now listen for a second. This, most of you assume, as we talk about this, most of you assume like now this is the part where I ask you, Nobody made room for Jesus on that night. Are you going to make room for him in your heart or whatever? It's not where I'm going, actually. Um, The Bible doesn't place any blame on anyone for these circumstances. Right? But the fact is, and I find this fascinating, the fact is there was no vacancy. There was no room. The maker and sustainer of the entire cosmos... Decided to enter that cosmos as a child, and he couldn't even get a room. I find that remarkable. Those that is the messiness of the circumstances of this birth. Now, what are we going to do with that? And that's the interesting point. Because you know, so much ink has been spilled uh, in songs and poems written about just the part we've covered so far. But if you look at the passage, if you put your eyes on chapter two here, Luke gives it seven verses. And we actually don't get many details about the birth. So what are we going to do with this? Let's move on. Let's move on to the message here, okay? Because this is the glaring emphasis of Luke uh, and Matthew, for that matter, is not the birth itself. For Luke, as you read the story, it's kind of like he tells you about the birth because he cannot wait to tell you what happened to the shepherds. It's like, let me tell you about how Jesus was born just so I can tell you about these shepherds and how they heard about it. Because that's the cool part of the story, okay? Um, which begs the, again begs the question, who could make this up? I, I don't think you, anybody has a good answer to that. Um, we tend, again, uh, even with shepherds, to have kind of a sentimental view of shepherds, right? We've got Psalm 23, the, the Lord is my shepherd, a very comforting psalm. We have Jesus himself saying, I am the good shepherd. We have nursery rhymes, like Mary had a little lamb and she... I don't know why she had it, but she had it. Um, and so we like shepherds, I guess, and, and lambs and sheep and stuff. But here's the thing, and maybe you've heard this before, but shepherding was not a glorious task. It was actually a rather inglorious task. Uh, the fact that David, remember King David in the Old Testament, the fact that when Samuel, the prophet, comes to Jesse's house, because God has said one of Jesse's sons is going to be king, and he goes one by one through all of Jesse's sons, he's like, this must be the king, this must be the king, and God's like, nope, nope, nope. And finally Samuel's like, None of these are the king. Do you have any other sons? And it's like an afterthought. They're like, oh yeah, there's that other one that's out keeping the sheep for us. Shepherding was an inglorious task. Shepherds were not esteemed. They're actually looked down upon. They lived out in fields. Therefore, they were not able to keep ceremonially, ceremonially clean. Therefore, they were ceremonially unclean. Meaning they were not allowed in in the temple. Uh, They were not allowed to come and worship. They were spiritual and societal outcasts. They were regarded as liars and thieves, something akin to like a gypsy. They were ragamuffins, okay? Their testimony was inadmissible in a court of law. So socially speaking, um, in the grand scale of ancient Near Eastern, well, I guess this isn't ancient Near Eastern, but Middle Eastern culture at the time, um, Shepherds fell somewhere in between lepers and women. That's where they were on the social scale. Okay, Yet, again, who would make this up? Yet, this is where Luke wants us to concentrate our attention. When we consider the fact that Jesus was born... He was a born a man. He was born in lowly estate. Luke wants us to draw, he wants to draw our attention here. Look at verse 15. When it's all done and the angels have gone, the shepherds look around and they say, let us go see this thing that has happened, which the Lord, this is the key, which the Lord has made known to us. Here it is. You see, the context of the story and of Jesus' birth means nothing. It means nothing if it's just something that happened. It means everything when you consider why did the Lord make it known. That's what the shepherds are pondering. That's what the shepherds act on. What has God made known? It's in verse 10. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what God has made known. So you see, the circumstances of Jesus' birth, when we really think about it, they do make us uncomfortable, okay? Why would, why would Jesus have been born into this messiness, into this darkness, into this uncertainty? But it's the message. It's the good news which helps us begin, and it helped the shepherds begin to make sense of it all. It's what Mary is left pondering in her heart. This message, this good news. Why was Jesus born the way he was? Why was he born in poor estate? Why was he born to a poor peasant girl? Why was he born to a no-name carpenter? carpenter. Why was he born and why was the world not watching? And here it is. What the message tells us, tells us the answer to all this. Because of our sin. That's Why? That's why he had to be born this way. That's why he had to be born at all if he was going to redeem us. Our sin. Again, why do the angels tell the, the shepherds that there's nothing to fear? What is the good news? Because born to you this day is a savior. Meaning you need rescue and the rescuer has come. That's what the angels were telling the shepherds. That's why the shepherds get up and they run. They go in haste, we're told. Because the Savior's here. And again, this is where the story, this is where the gospel begins to upset us. Again, this is where the gospel begins to make us uncomfortable. Because it's messy. Because we don't want to talk about the sin part. We want to talk about the happy part and the love part and the away away in a manger part. And like he wasn't crying. He was crying. He was a baby. He was crying. Okay. Can we get over that? Um, Why do we do this? Why does it make us uncomfortable? Here it is. My suggestion to you. Because whether you acknowledge it or not, most of us in this room, We believe that Christianity is for the good people. If you really think about it, if you really think about what you believe and think about the gospel and Christianity, most of us practically in our lives think and are living our lives in such a way that what we're saying is that we believe that this story is for the good people. How do I know that? I mean, take something like Christmas, The thing that we have celebrated for a long time to commemorate this event, right? What have we made Christmas all about? Not just in our culture, not just the boogeymen out in the world, right? The worldly people, all they care about is Black Friday. Um, No. What have we made Christmas all about? Those of us who say, like, it's the most important thing that ever happened in history because it was Jesus' birth. What have we made Christmas all about? But I'm not going to answer that question. I'm actually going to ask the question another way. Why do you think it is that Christmas can be and often is the darkest time of year for so many people? Why? Why do so many people struggle with depression and anger throughout the Christmas season? It's because we think Christianity is only for the good people. That's why. We think Christianity, we think the gospel is for the people that have it all together. We think Christianity is for those people whose families still sit down and eat meals together and don't actually argue about anything. We think that Christianity is for the people, the families that all voted for the same president, right? And they all think it's the best thing ever. We think that it's for those people whose moms and dads not only still live together, but also both call them or text them um, every day or once a few times a week. We think Christianity is for the people whose lives are still somewhat whole. And we think that if we're not one of those people, that it's not for us anymore. If you're that person, I just want to suggest to you, you've never seriously considered this story right here, just this one that we read tonight. Because if this story is true in Luke chapter 2, it cannot be true that this, this thing called Christianity is for the good people. It cannot be true that the gospel, that religion, that Christianity, following this Jesus and being his disciple, right? It cannot be true that it's only for those people who came to college to be good students. It can't just be for those people that came to college and didn't find themselves depressed or angry or drunk or in the bed with somebody they never thought they'd end up in the bed with. If this story is true, we're wrong about who we think and who we think we're supposed to be in this Christianity thing. I hope you're starting to see the beauty of the messiness of the story. Because here is why the angels of heaven, the hosts of heaven, can come down to a ragtag group of shepherds that nobody else likes and say to them, unto you, is born this day a savior because the very reason that that savior was born that that savior was born in a mess was because he purposely came to be born in that mess to take on our mess and our messiness And to live a life that was perfect and far from anything that we ever could have lived. And then give that life up at the end and be treated as if he was a mess like us. Theologians actually refer to Jesus' birth as his humiliation. Uh, If you look in a systematic theology book, there's a theological term called Jesus' humiliation. It's not his betrayal. It's not his beating. It's not his crucifixion. It's the fact that he was born a person. That was his humiliation. And he did it of his own will. And the thing is, you talk about that Jesus' humiliation, theologians are not talking about how his life will end. But here's another beauty about this story, is that how his life will end is looming right here already. I don't know how many of you remember back in 2012 the horror of the Newtown shootings as elementary grade children were murdered uh, by an individual with a gun in their school. Right? Um, it was a horrific. It was one of the most horrific stories I know of my lifetime. Um, but if you'll remember, it was in December. It was around Christmas time. Which made it even more heartbreaking. There's a author, a New York Times columnist called uh, named Ross Douthat. He wrote about it. This is how he ended. He's a Ross Douthat's a Christian. This is how he ended um, his article. Uh, in the days after those shootings he said this you know there's a realism about the suffering that the christmas story contains that realism may be hard to see at christmas time when the sentimental side of our faith owns the cultural stage but the christmas story isn't just the manger and the shepherds and the baby jesus meek and mild the rage of herod is there as well and the slaughtered innocence of bethlehem and the myrrh that prepares bodies for the grave You see, the cross looms behind the stable, the shadow of violence, agony, and death in the leafless hills of western Connecticut. This is the only Christmas spirit that could possibly matter now. I love that because I think it gets at this. If Christianity is as we usually treat it for the good people, we're hopeless. Because our lives are a mess. Our world is a mess. Our families are a mess, right? We know it. As much as we try to hide it and put the face on and uh, be involved as many extracurricular student organizations, whatever, we know it's a mess. And the beauty of the messiness of the Christmas story is our attention is actually drawn to the destitution of the circumstances and the context around it. So that our attention will then be drawn to the destitution that all of us are born into. So that we will see that his coming means definitively that he has come to deal with it. That's the message of his birth. The message of Jesus' birth is not, hey, let's celebrate, everything's great. Mm -mm. The message of Jesus' birth is that we need a savior and he's here. Again, take that, take uh, verse 11, break it down. He's the Savior, Matthew one twenty one. The angel told, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. He's the Christ, which literally means anointed one. He is God's chosen and God's appointed one for this task. And he's the Lord. Luke, it's interesting in the Greek, Luke is at this point, just into chapter 2, Luke has already used that Greek word Lord 20 times. Each time in reference to God. This baby, born in poor estate and laid in a manger, he is God himself in the flesh. That's what Luke is telling us. So not only do we have hope that he's come to deal with our mess, But we have assurance that he is able to do it. (laughs) Because he's God. That's the good news. That's the message. The Final thing, we'll wrap it up with this. Is the mission. The message. Mission. This is heavy, right? What, what in the world are we going to do with all of this? Larry King, if you know who he was, he used to have a talk show on CNN for a long time. Um, he's, been, he's like 120 years old. Um, anyway, he was once asked who he would interview if he had his pick from all of history. And perhaps his answer is unsurprising. He said, Jesus. And so the interviewer asked him, well, what would you ask him? And without missing a beat, Larry King said, I would ask him if he was indeed virgin born. Because the answer to that would define the rest of history for me. And if only I had a bell and I had been sitting there, I would have gone ding, 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 ding. Exactly, right? This event and its meaning, no hyperbole here, if it's true, it defines all of history. This event, if it's true, It defines, whether you want it to or not, all of history. But more than that, this is what it does. If it's true, it demands that you have to do something with it. If it's true, it demands that you have to do do something with it. The first thing, look look at what the angel says in verse 10. He says, fear not. From the angel's perspective, this event, even though no one has shown up to it yet, What it means for the shepherds and the rest of the world is that there is no more reason to fear. Nowhere in this world anymore, the angel says, is there any reason to fear? That's remarkable. There are a lot of things to fear in this life. Wait till you have kids. You will worry about things that you never imagined worrying about. It's like, you know, the the saying is like, gosh, I'm so like my dad. When you have children, that's what happens. You start worrying about, like, I think my child's going to climb up on the house and jump off the roof. Like, I just think that would be something he would do. He's over there. Speaking to you, Harris, I hope you're listening. Um, right? But the angel says, because of this event, there's no reason to fear. And here's the thing. This event was not just for the glory of God, though it definitely was for that purpose. But ultimately, what we're being told at the get out of the get-go is, it's for our good. Because, look, we all long for nothing to fear. We all long for that. We are all clinging to things, tweeting about things, going off abroad and attaching ourselves to different causes. Because we long for this world, or at least our lives, to be places where fear does not exist. And what this begins to tell us, and what the rest of the New Testament writers will tell us, is that because of Jesus... There is nothing to fear. Why? Because the ultimate thing that gave us cause to fear as sinners in this world was a holy God. But the thing about the story is that it completely unexpected tells us that He's also a loving God. And He has provided us His own Son. And because of that, we will have peace on earth. For those those with whom He is pleased. There's no reason to fear now. I really don't have to have the rest of my life figured out. I really don't have to be in control of every detail of my life. I really don't have to have it all together. I really don't have to be enslaved to what other people think about me. Fear is all gone now because of Jesus and because God's heart is happy with me now. Second thing, look at the shepherds in verse 15 and 16. We're told that they went in haste. I don't have enough time to spend any time on this, but just think about the shepherds here. They heard. Then they went and investigated. And then they confirmed. And then they celebrated. They heard. They investigated. They confirmed it. And they celebrated. There's a pattern for life right there. Phil Riken puts it like this, that God has promised that any who go looking for him will reach the goal of their quest. That's the promise. And the shepherds draw it out for us. The last thing, it's the most beautiful part of the story, I wish we had more time for it, but verse 19. But Mary, (laughs) great line, but Mary, but Mary treasured up. All these things, pondering them in her heart. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with uh, a book, and I guess it's also been a a stage play. I was in it when I was like six. Um, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Uh, Maybe your parents read this to you when you were a kid or something. Uh, But this book is told from the point of view of a girl whose mother is going to uh, run the local church or local town theater's annual Christmas pageant, right? Um, And the main point of the story is that this really rough and rowdy family of kids um, who seem to have no adult supervision in their life, and that's why they're rough and rowdy, they end up in the pageant and all the hilarity that ensues in the lead-up to the pageant because of it. And the beautiful part of the story is that the roughest of the bunch is the oldest sister, Imogene. What a great name. If your name is Imogene, I want to high-five you later. Um, Her name is Imogene, um, and she's slotted to play Mary. And lo and behold, on pageant night, what the narrator of the story, the little girl whose mother is running the pageant, uh, what she finds is that in Imogene playing Mary, that there's a realism to her playing that role that blows the narrator away. I just want to read it to you. This is what the narrator says. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the Herdmans to do something absolutely unexpected. And sure enough, that's what happened. Imogene Herdman was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shiny with tears and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there. Awful old Imogene in her crookedy veil crying and crying and crying. And this was the funny thing about it all. For years, I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth, but I'd never really understood it. But now, because of the Herdmans, it didn't seem so mysterious at all. When Imogene had asked me what the pageant was about, I told her it was about Jesus. But that was only part of it. It was about a new baby and his mother and father who were in a lot of trouble, no money, no place to go, no doctor, Nobody they knew. But Imogene, I guess, didn't see it that way. Christmas just came over her all at once, like a case of chills and the fever. And so she was crying. I love that. Christmas just came over her all at once. And so she was crying. Here it is. If you believe the story tonight, uh, believe it's true. Maybe, maybe you heard it all your life, or maybe just only recently. But you believe it. Well, this tells us is that this should be treasure for you. It should be treasure for you that the gospel, the good news of a great joy, that it should be doing something in you. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's something you've been longing for, and you've been maybe even wondering why it hadn't been happening. But it says that if this is true, and if you believe it, it's going to do something in you. It should be leading you to glorify and praise God with your life, and with your words, and with your work, with your relationships. Because it's treasure. But perhaps, perhaps you find yourself here tonight. And if you're honest, you find yourself, you're still pondering, or you're still wondering. And this is all I want to say to you. That is okay. That is perfectly okay. Because like I said, if this story is true, then what it must mean is that it cannot be just for the people that get it or think they do. But I invite you, I invite all of you, listen to the angels. Follow the shepherds Look to Jesus, and I promise, as Phil Reichen said, God has promised that those who go looking for him will find what they're looking for because he will fulfill the goal of their quest. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this story. We thank you for good news. Father, we pray that it would be to us, to our hearts, good news of a great joy. Father, that it would be treasure to us, that it would do something in us. And that we would be those that could not help but do something with it. Father, we can't do it on our own. But you've promised to be there with those who come looking. We thank you for that and we pray these things in Jesus' name.